The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We have a great program for you today with Tony Bajran, analyst of the Foundation for Defensive Democracies, talking to us about the latest on the protests in Iraq and in Lebanon against Iranian and overwhelming Shia influence in those two countries. But first, a little bit of analysis on a major foreign policy announcement that was made this week by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, declaring that the United States no longer sees Israeli towns in the West Bank as illegitimate under international law, revoking a 1978 memo passed by the State Department under the administration of Jimmy Carter, which the United States no longer considers relevant. This means that these territories are in dispute and are not bound by the obligations under UN Resolution 242, at least in the opinions of the United States Department of State. But the exact opposite regarding the reaction in terms of less favorability and downright condemnation coming from Democratic presidential candidates running for office for the 2020 election. Michael Levinson, Middle East Forum Washington fellow, brings us the following. All of the Democratic frontrunners have condemned Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's declaration that the establishment of Israeli civilian settlements in the West Bank is not per se inconsistent with international law according to the Pompeo spokesperson. In addition, candidate Joe Biden's campaign spokesperson, Andrew Bates, released a statement saying, this decision harms the cause of diplomacy, takes us further away from the hope of a two-state solution, and will only further inflame tensions in the region. It's not about peace or security. It's about not, it is not about being pro-Israel. It is about undercutting Israel's future in service of Trump's personal politics. Bates made clear that Vice President Biden is and has always been a strong supporter of Israel. However, the spokesperson for the Democratic hopeful insisted critical to that strong support is the understanding that the best way to ensure Israel's future security as a Jewish and Democratic state is for Israelis and Palestinians to work together towards the two-state solution. That's the only way to achieve the legitimate rights and freedom of the Palestinian people deserve. Expanding settlement activity makes that harder. It's an obstacle to peace. That's something that every previous administration, both Republican and Democratic, have agreed on until Trump. However, Putin Buttigieg's condemnation also lamented the step as an obstacle to peace, creating a Palestinian state and adding that it undermines American interests. The Trump administration's statement on West Bank settlements is not only a significant step backward in our efforts to achieve a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it is the latest in a pattern of destructive decisions that harm our national interests. So there goes the Democratic candidates and arguably even President Trump turning the Israeli-Palestinian conflict again into a political football. But it's not just the statements of Buttigieg and Biden which are coming out, but it's now how we've moved along this uh, spectrum of how democratic politics have shifted from only 20 years ago being some of the most pro-Israel in the country to now being the most condemnatory regarding Israeli actions. Bernie Sanders' rhetoric was even harsher, tweeting, Israeli settlements in occupied territory are illegal. This is clear from international law and multiple United Nations resolutions. Once again, Mr. Trump is isolating the United States and undermining diplomacy by pandering to his extremist base. 
Elizabeth Warren also focused on the purported illegality of the settlements in her response. Another blatantly ideological attempt by the Trump administration to distract from its failures in the region. Not only do these settlements violate international law, they make peace harder to achieve. As president, I will reverse this policy and pursue a two-state solution. Again, in Sanders' comments, he refers to the U.S. having to outsource its foreign policy to international institutions. And Elizabeth Warren goes even further. She connects the presence of half a million Jewish residents in the West Bank with the ability for the Palestinians to accept peace. The two have nothing to do with one another. The Palestinians will never accept a Jewish neighbor, whether it be in the state of Israel or it be in the disputed territories in the West Bank. So what Warren is saying is, I'm going to reverse policy of the Trump administration, the right for Israelis to live in their traditional homeland, and I'm going to endorse the expulsion of half a million Jews from the West Bank. That's not really a policy starter, Senator Warren. Beyond that, I think that the responses of Buttigieg and Biden are also similarly irresponsible, yet not as loaded with rhetoric as we find from the senator from Massachusetts and the senator from Vermont. As it relates to Buttigieg, he's ahead in Iowa right now. He has to make some comments on understanding what's going on with the rest of the Middle East policy. I mean, we just had the big win with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi a few weeks ago. Now he has to come out hard against the settlement announcement, because otherwise, God forbid, he gives President Trump a little bit of credit. And Joe Biden himself, again, gets the way in which Palestinian-Israeli peace paradigm making is correct. He has to understand that when there is agreement between Israelis and Palestinians to make peace, that is when the peace process will truly have the ability to actually get some legs, not when an American president dictates their position to the Palestinian president and the Israeli prime minister. One thing Warren does have correct in her statement is, is that this goes against both Republicans and Democrats. Why? Because all previous peacemaking attempts have failed when it was under the auspices of previous administrations. Maybe the United States in this specific case saying, you know what? Maybe it's not in our interest to directly intervene in every single cycle of Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. Maybe we can actually play favorites because that's what responsible countries do and say, we're going to back Israel to the hilt. What's the strategic plus that we get out of the relationship with the Palestinians. What does the United States benefit from having the Palestinians under its yoke or under its thumb? Besides being able to maybe give some aid money? Well, that's gone. Being able to counteract their uh, you know, resolutions in the United Nations by putting a break on it? I haven't seen Abu Mazen, the president of the Palestinian Authority, stop at any of the president's requests, let alone President Trump. President Obama was treated in a similar, in a similar way with the Palestinians pursuing a unilateral declaration of independence in the General Assembly when President Obama was in office, way before the time of President Trump. And even if you want to talk about biting the hand that feeds you, the only thing that President Bush got from Yasser Arafat and even from his successor, Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, was violence, hateful rhetoric, and empty promises. When it comes to the time that the Palestinian leader, whoever it will be, the current one, Maybe those in Hamas and Gaza, maybe they have to get taught a lesson first in a much larger conflict. I don't know. But the general idea that the United States is endorsing one side of a two-sided conflict 
it actually makes me feel pretty good about American foreign policy making that we know how to choose our friends and how to rebut our enemies. We don't have to play the middleman because in previous instances of the United States doing this, especially in the Middle East, it's led to animus from both sides that we were trying to negotiate with. Now, in general, when we bring on my next guest, Tony Bedron from FDD, from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, we'll understand what happens when a foreign actor tries to influence a little bit too much into a sectarian conflict. And as a parallel, and this is not necessarily talking about the same foreign actor, there's a big difference between Iranian influence operations and American influence operations, but the brass tacks are the same. The more the Democrat senatorial and House and other presidential candidates for office start trying to opine on foreign policy where they are saying that there is no two sides to a dispute, but they only decide to recognize one without a little bit of effort to mollify pre-existing conditions or even beyond that, to try to understand the new rub and what's going on in intergener intergenerational leadership shifts like we have right now within the Palestinian Authority, within Hamas, within Palestinian politics that are going on across not just the West Bank and Gaza and with Israel itself. You have Yarmouk to worry about. You have 18 camps in Lebanon you have to worry about. You have almost half the Jordanian population, which is having an identity crisis. One day they're Palestinian, the next day they're Jordanian. Sometimes they may even want to be an Iraqi, a Syrian, or even a Saudi. This idea of identity and what the presidential candidates are trying to do to dictate which side is correct in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a lot, lot, lot deeper than just having an opinion on settlements. It has to get to the root of the conflict. And that's about one identity, in this case, the Palestinians, accepting another national identity, in that case, the Israelis. After these messages, Tony Badron. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of nonviolent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org. Or check us out on Twitter, at Islamist Watch. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today, or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. I'm Greg Roman, your host, and our next subject comes 
at the headlines of the New York Times describing the situation on the ground in Beirut, Lebanon, an article by Vivian Gee. Protesters on Tuesday stopped Parliament from convening to discuss a package of controversial laws that critics fear could provide amnesty for past corruption as crowds blocked roads leading to government buildings and skirmishes broke out with the riot police. The action comes on the 34th day of widespread anti-government protests that both galvanized and paralyzed the country Lebanon. And the protesters' success seemed likely to sharpen tensions between the government and the people. To discuss these protests and its wider implications for American national security interests in the Middle East, I would like to welcome Tony Bajran, a, fe- a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Lebanon, Hezbollah, Syria, and the geopolitics of the Levant. Born and raised in Lebanon, Tony has testified to the U.S. House of Representatives on several occasions regarding U.S. policy towards those countries, and his research currently focuses on the relationship between Iran's Hezbollah model and regional states. His writings have appeared in many publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and Foreign Policy. Tony, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Greg. Thank you. 34 days of protests in Lebanon. What are they protesting about? Well, uh, the trigger for it all is essentially the, the major economic mismanagement and impending collapse basically of the Lebanese economic and financial system. Uh, and uh, what brought this about is the endemic corruption of the Lebanese political class, which is uh, sectarian based. Uh, and basically, with minor exceptions, this political class, in one form or another, um, and the families and the figures uh, that that constitute it, have been ruling Lebanon since pretty much, you know, since the days of the Civil War and its aftermath. So this is a long-standing elite, uh, you know, that, that took different shapes when the Syrians occupied the country from uh, 19, uh, uh, you know, from when they entered in 1976 to, uh, and then when, when they took it in 1990 until 2005 when they left. A lot of the figures were still part of that uh, political class, and then there were newcomers and so on, but basically it's the same places, and they are tremendously corrupt. And finally, you had a movement that is unique in uh, modern history in that it is not taking shape along sectarian lines. It is not being driven by the sectarian parties. It is driven against the sectarian parties and against them all across the board and across the various regions of Lebanon. So that's, that's new. It's, it's, it's very interesting uh, to watch, and it has galvanized the population in, in Lebanon uh, to, to not yield and not relent in the face of the provocations and the, and the various machinations of this elite. So we have our old leaders of the sectarian classes in their, representative, their political representation, Saad Ariri, the future movement. We have Michelle Aoun. We have Hassan Nasrallah, Nabi Berry, Wali Jamblat, mm-hmm. all identified with Shia, Sunni, Maronite, Druze, and different Lebanese mm-hmm. minorities. Who is the grassroots leadership of this current protest movement, if any? There aren't really any visible uh, leaders, certainly not among sort of established, even even among the movements like what, what we call non-governmental 
uh, organizations or or civic organiz civil society organizations. Not even those really. I mean, some of them, yes, uh, they, they are there and they're participating. But it is it is uh, you know it is a lot more organic. There are organizers that are talking through social media and and stuff and stuff like that. But it is it because it is so widely uh, uh, diffused. So you have you know a whole thing happening in the north in Tripoli, for instance, which you know a lot of the people who are part of those civil society movements or NGOs usually are from like the Beirut area or so, or maybe from some from sort of Shia areas in the south or you know that are anti Hezbollah or something of that nature. Yeah. A much more diffuse phenomenon here, and uh, uh, they recently just scored on the level of organization a, 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 a first minor victory in a in a in a bar association election when when they fielded a candidate against the combined candidate of the of the all of the uh, other parties, right? And they won, so they felt that now they can mobilize even in a voting a situation against the political elite. It's still obviously all of this, there's still a lot of questions, you know, how you translate this, this popular movement into, uh, into anything political. Can you, can you coexist with the sectarian system and not be co-opted? Uh, or do you, uh, you know, the protests are demanding that the whole system gets replaced. How do you achieve that? All of these are big questions. And of course, the big elephant in the room is Hezbollah, which is, you know, an armed, uh, army. It's a militia that uh, is not about to simply, uh, uh, you know, uh, give up its position in Lebanon. And it, in fact, what's what's interesting and ironic is that Hezbollah now has come up as come out as the strongest defender of the sectarian-based system and the status quo, which is interesting when you consider its history as a sort of a revolutionary movement that wanted to integrate Lebanon into a larger Islamic state ruled by Iran. Um, so now that they are, this system works so much to their advantage that uh, they are now really its, its strongest defenders. Now, Hassan Nasrallah, speaking about Hezbollah, makes a speech a few days ago where he says, those who investigate corruption, look at Hezbollah first. And this is a message which is meant to temper or mollify or ameliorate some of the Shia concerns of us seeing protesters in the Dahiya neighborhood of southern Beirut starting to rise up against their patrons, against Hezbollah. I mean, would you say this is unique insofar as you have former or current Hezbollah supporters going out onto the streets, bucking the Nasrallah, uh, uh, you know, let's call it like fanboydom, whatever you want to call it, and, 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 and his status is almost a living martyr, a living saint, and saying to them, you know what, Nasrallah, we're going to come out, we're going to protest against you because we're not happy with the sectarian system. Right, so there, there, the the to introduce a little bit of of color. So there is there is a uh, there, there was I you know obviously a, a, a mass movement uh, of protests among the Shia in Beirut, in the south, in the Beka, uh, in Baalbek, and so on, and and they um, they attacked uh, by name. You know, uh, Nabih Birri, they attacked by name various MPs of of Hezbollah, and uh, and they. Then they, the Amal and Hezbollah uh, uh, parties uh, unleashed goons against them and to beat them up and rough them up, uh, which they did in in uh, uh, with the with the complicity of the Lebanese security forces as well. Uh, and 
so there was a little bit of a sort of a tempering of that message. So some people will 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 isolate Nasrallah, you know, uh, and neutralize him as 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 a target. So they will say, well, you know, Hezbollah MPs and ministers are corrupt. Hassan Nasrallah can be set aside. Uh, it's not uh, widespread. I mean, you you see different types of opinions. So, uh, but but it is it is something new. Like they, and and the way the the people in Lebanon are describing it, the, the Shia who are coming out on uh, against Hezbollah in the in these areas are describing it as sort of the 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 the, the barrier of fear has been kind of broken. Right, so it, it is new. It is it is certainly disconcerting for for them to see this uh, unrelenting uh, phenomenon, and not just that it's coming out against them in their areas, but that it's m- meshing with the rest of the country in in places where you know with Sunnis, with Christians, and so on, and and that it is and that there's no sort of light for any ability for sort of sectarian agitation. That and believe me, they've tried, right? Far, all of them have have failed. Now, you know how how we go from where we go from here and how it pro- progresses from here. All of which, all of that remains to be seen. We really, we really know, don't know. It's it's really uh, anyone's guess. Now, let's let's do a little bit of a comparative analysis if we can on the protests also going on in Iraq and in Iran. Is there a connection with Lebanon? Well, I mean, th- there is on the surface a connection that in all these three places. The Iran, uh, obviously, Iran inside Iran, the regime in Iran is is, is the regime in Iran, and but also it, it, it's it, the regime in Iran uh, has um, its uh, tentacles uh, and its assets uh, that are the major powers in Iraq. So the various uh, Shia political parties in Iraq and the, the various, more specifically, the militias that are modeled on the IRGC in our led, commanded by, and financed by the IRGC in Iraq. Uh, you know, these guys are the, the powers that be in Iraq. And they, uh, so, so the, the protests in Iraq specifically have taken on very much an anti-Iran color. So, uh, you know, you will see very specific targeting of Iran and Iranian figures and Ali Khamenei, the leader of Iran. And, and the various militias that are associated with Iran. In Lebanon, um, because Hezbollah, while obviously being explicitly targeted, and, you know, Iran's president of Lebanon is Hezbollah, uh, it, it is, and, and more recently after the Iranian protests started, the Lebanese started talking about, you know, a unity of protests from Beirut to Tehran. So they're consciously kind of tying themselves to this phenomenon. But in terms of its actual expression in Lebanon, it's an expression against the system of which Hezbollah is the head, right? So, uh, so uh, it, it is not directly or explicitly, you know, uh, uh, expressed in terms of Iran the way it is in Iraq, but it is very much understood that when you're attacking the system, you're attacking the Hezbollah-led system as well, and you're attacking Hezbollah as the chief uh, sort of organizer of the system. So the last time that I look at popular revolt or protest, at least on this level, maybe a little bit larger than this, is February 14th, 2005. We have the beginning of massive protests against the Syrian presence in Lebanon, uh, the subsequent uh, you know, assassinations of Rafiq Hariri, the uh, demand for the uh, 
individuals behind those, that assassination attempt. And I think it was some 17 people were killed in that massive bomb that went off in Beirut, maybe even more, uh, on his convoy. And it culminates on the 27th of April, 2005, with free and fair elections, or as free and fair as those elections can be, in Lebanon and the removal of Syrian troops. So if we look at that time period, if we go between uh, the middle of February and the end of April, 2005, it's about 10 weeks. Now, we're in our sixth week of protests. Is there anything that could be done on a similar level that the Lebanese authorities would be able to enact? You know, I, I think the disarming of Hezbollah is a pipe dream. But um, maybe there would be some ability to, to, to separate the Lebanese army and Hezbollah. You, you came on here on this program a few months ago and you said very, very, with a very colorful description that Hezbollah is a terror organization and the Lebanese army is part of Hezbollah. It's interchangeable. What, what comes out of these protests? Well, uh, let, the first point is to, it's very important to differentiate between these protests and the 2005 protests. In fact, you can argue that these protests are the mirror opposite of the 2005 protests. There's really no connection because the 2005 protests, although there was a sense of spontaneity at first, uh, just the outrage at the, at the killing and the sort of the brazenness of it. Uh, immediately, the organization of them was taken over by the sectarian political parties. Immediately, right? In this case, it's the exact opposite. The sectarian parties are not involved. They are the target of these, or of these protests. So this is a fundamental difference that has to be kept in mind. Um, now, the, the, how do you go and, you know, like, what do the authorities do? The authorities are trying to placate by trying to say, well, let's form a new government. Let's do this. Let's do that. And none of this is really working, right? Because, because they don't, there's no trust between the protests and the political class, right? So any proposal that's coming from the political class is being dismissed. Um, because they're, you know, it's seen as a trick and a way to co-opt and placate and just diffuse the situation. So they, uh, they're very consciously rejecting it. Uh, and you know, what you, what you led with, with the, with the parliament, you know, uh, with the session, you know, that, that they wanted to do a session to pass things, among which is a law that would grant amnesty, which everyone suspects was a way for them <laughs> to, to give amnesty for themselves. And that, and nobody is, nobody's interested in hearing any of this on the street. So all of, so again, it's a very, very different uh, uh, phenomenon than, than, than 2005, which is precisely why it's very unclear as to how we proceed from here. The people don't want a government or a, or a, or a political system where these people are in power. Now, these people are not going to give up power. <laughs> so that's the <laughs> impasse. How do we, where do we go from here? You know, and in the background, there's an, uh, an economic collapse, right? The Lebanese such as it is, right? It's not really an economic system. Let's, uh, let's tax like WhatsApp. A, it, it, well, I mean, that was just a trigger. It just shows you the brazenness of this, of this elite, that they're trying to raise revenue from anywhere they can possibly think of without doing any structural reforms and, and letting go of their, uh, you know, of their profits. Uh, because the system really runs on, a, on the equivalent of a Ponzi scheme through the Lebanese banks. The Lebanese government is very uh, much in debt. It's one of the most indebted governments on, on the planet. And uh, 
the the debt is serviced by the Lebanese banks, so the banks are exposed to it. In addition to that, the economy is dollarized, so the peg, the Lebanese pound is pegged to the dollar, so they need to sustain that as well, which all of this depends on a, on a sustained inflow of U.S. dollars and cash from abroad into the Lebanon, so they need fresh money constantly, like in any Ponzi scheme, right? But, but, uh, but with the sanctions on Hezbollah, the, the sanctions by the Arab states in the Gulf against Hezbollah and which affected the you know, workers in diaspora in the Gulf and the ability to send remittances, you know, and all of these things um, have affected the cash inflow, uh, leading to this leading to this crisis point. So, in the background of everything else, the the, the economy is is teetering on the edge if if it's not all, already over the edge. So. Everything is open. All the possibilities are open, and we really don't know, you know, where we're going to go. It's we're, we're staring at really new ground here. And what I find fascinating is how some of the leaders of the protests are being directly targeted by uh, opposition and even government members of parliament. We have a report from Gulf News about member a Lebanese member of parliament, Hikmat Adib, calling for the beheading of Lebanese pop star Rageb Alameh. Uh, this is reported in Dubai News, or sorry, Gulf News out of Dubai. A parliament member called for the heading of a famous Lebanese pop star after the release of a song d- depicting the worsening situation of the country caused an outrage. Speaking on a talk show, uh, one of the founders of the Free Patriotic Movement Party, founded by the current Lebanese president, Michel Aoun, said the singer's head should be removed. Now, maybe that's just a turn of, of expression. But um, when you look at the description of what's going on with these different protests, I mean, and you just look at the sheer uh, diversity, like you said before, and you have feminists, you have anarchists, you have socialists, you have nationalists, even, and this, I don't know how significant this is, but tell me, the Syriac Maronite Church is behind the protests as well, and they're starting to, you know, send out their officials onto the streets, at least with a little bit of theocratic support from uh, one of Lebanon's traditional uh, Christian institutions, Maronite institutions. I mean... Does the U.S. come in and put money into this? Does the Iranian, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Al-Quds Brigade from the IRGC send in more besieged guys? I mean, what what happens here? You know, this is what I'm trying to, to really figure out. I understand the direction that you're speaking about with the sectarian systems trying to do everything they can to, uh, you know, beget responsibility and to, to, to impose fixes that otherwise would uh, not help prevent Lebanon's economy from going into more of a morass, but you know, with maybe a minute left here, any recommendations for American policymakers on how they should well, relate to this? Yeah, so I mean, to, to just focus on, on on the U.S. here, I think uh, uh, the most important thing is not to give them any bailout to this political class, uh, because that will simply. I mean, first of all, it's unclear what it would do, but it would, if anything, if it does anything, it'll just prolong its life, and it, it's it's not what the people on the streets want. And 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 since the system is being defended by Hezbollah, we have to understand that this is a system that is tailor made for Hezbollah. So if you are helping that system continue to survive, then you're really you're really helping Hezbollah's case, right? So uh, the United States should not allow any bailout for, 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 for this class. Let this, let this phenomenon play out and let it continue and support, um, just stay on the side of the protests in terms of supporting the exit of the entire uh, political class. That's the most important thing. And with regard to the, you know, to people shooting on the streets or, 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 or calling for the beheading or whatever, 
president's movement, the Lebanese president's movement, has been shooting people on the street. I mean, there's <laughs> video of, 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 of people, you know, trying and with, with guns. And the Lebanese armed forces, which the United States pays, has not done a good job in protecting these protests. In fact, they have been cracking down and arresting them. So the United States also should make sure to, to, to tell these guys that you're not going to get any money uh, uh, and, and while, while you're doing this, this type of behavior. As uh, Tony Bedron, uh, and I'm going to conclude with your own words, Tony, wrote uh, quite presently in an article for Al-Arabiya at the end of October, he says in his second to last paragraph in an article titled, Lebanon is a basket case run by a terror group. Don't fund it. There's a long-standing conceit in Washington and in Europe that Lebanon must be saved, an impulse undiminished by the fact the country is dominated by Hezbollah and serves as a hub for its operations and criminal enterprise. However, a basket case run by a terror group cannot be treated like a normal state. Not wiser words could describe the situation, Tony. Thank you for joining us. What? And after these messages, more on Emmy. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. I'm Greg Roman with your headlines at the bottom of the hour. Out of Iran, Amnesty International said on Tuesday that at least 106 protesters have been killed in 21 cities during the recent unrest that broke out over fuel price rises last week. However, Amnesty International conceded that the real death toll might be much higher, with some reports suggesting as many as 200 having been killed. The Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights expressed deep concern earlier on Tuesday following reports indicating that dozens of people have been killed in continuing protests across Iran, including some by live ammunition. The Office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights spokesperson Robert Colville added that more than a thousand protesters have also been arrested, although the agency was unable to verify the numbers independently as it does not have an office in the country. The disorder engulfs about 100 cities where at least 100 banks, along with dozens of buildings and cars, have been torched, state media reports. Amnesty's research shows the western Kermanasha province and the oil-rich southwestern province of Khuzestan to be the hardest-hit areas. 
Sighting witnesses corroborated by video footage, Amnesty said snipers shot into crowds of people from rooftops, and in one case, a helicopter. An article published Tuesday in the hardline Chayan newspaper suggests that executions loomed for those who led violent protests. Also out of Iran, not connected to the protests, but of equal concern, the likelihood that Iran will be buying a new advanced fighter jet and tank when a UN Security Council arms embargo is scheduled to be lifted next year is something that is starting to concern U.S. security officials, according to the Defense Intelligence Agency's release of a new assessment of Iran's military capabilities. The DIA report concludes that Tehran is committed to make becoming the dominant power in the Middle East, and it warns that the Islamic Republic is making rapid progress developing attack drones and other missile systems. The intelligence officials said Iran would probably buy the tanks and aircraft from Russia and China, Currently, Iran uses 1970s-era Soviet tanks and a number of older fighter aircraft, according to the DIA report. Out of Israel, back to the notice that we started off at the top of the hour. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Tuesday pledged to pass immediately legislation to annex the Jordan Valley, about a quarter of the West Bank, after a potential unity government is formed. The historic decision by the American administration from yesterday hands us a unique opportunity to set Israel's eastern border and annex the Jordan Valley, Netanyahu said in a Hebrew language video posted on Twitter, referring to a major policy shift Monday by the United States, saying that it no longer views West Bank settlements as inconsistent with international law. Netanyahu then called on opposition leader Benny Gantz and potential coalition partner Avigdor Lieberman to form a unity government whose first item would be the annexation of the Jordan Valley. Also on settlements, quite large news out of the European Court of Justice this week. With an effort by all 28 European member states to issue a joint statement condemning the U.S. decision to no longer consider Israeli settlements as illegal, is being blocked by all countries, Hungary, according to a diplomatic source with direct knowledge of the matter. No text has been circulated among member states, as Hungarian Foreign Minister Peter Sejarto made it plain that the country would veto any statement on the settlement's legality, the source added, speaking to the Times of Israel on condition of anonymity. Sejarto instructed his diplomats to oppose any statement on the legality of his settlements, even if it was formulated in general terms, and it avoided direct criticism of Washington's policy change. Budapest has been at loggerheads with Brussels over the Middle East peace process several times in recent months. For instance, the government of Prime Minister Viktor Orban also blocked the joint statement condemning the U.S. administration's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Joint statements in the name of EU member states require unanimity of all 28 member nations. And in Turkey, dour news and dire news for the country's 120 journalists that still remain in Turkey's jails more than in any other country. Can you imagine that a country, Turkey, some 80, 90 million people, has more journalists in jail than despotic regimes like North Korea, China, Russia, Venezuela, anywhere else but the harbingers of press freedom or, 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 or direct attacks against press freedom. It is a shanda what is going on in Turkey. And the situation of the country in the media, excuse me, the situation of the media in the country has not improved since the lifting of a two-year state of emergency last year, the International Press Institute said on Tuesday. However, the number of journalists in jail has fallen from a high of over 160. Still, 120 people trying to report on what your government is doing, being accused of trumped-up charges of treason, subterfuge, and sedition, not belonging in a democracy. 
Not that Turkey is really one anymore. After these messages, more news. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. And for the next 20 minutes, I hope to be able to have a little bit of a discussion with some of our Middle East staff members, Middle East Forum staff members, in the areas that they've been focusing on. It's been a long while since we've had our next guest on this program and I think that there's been many developments specifically in the areas of foreign influence and American education systems that I really cannot wait to get to start talking about. Winfield Myers, Director of Campus Watch of the Middle East Forum's uh, longest uh, standing project. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Greg. Good to be with you. So, Win, I have been noticing a lot of production coming out of your outfit. We have David Gersman, the new managing editor for Campus Watch, putting out a lot of different material. You have A.J. Cachetta, Mitch Bard, who have been writing on programs. And you yourself just finished some 11 to 12 dossiers, not even dossiers, profiles of American Middle East Studies programs that receive federal funding and the quality of scholarship that's coming out of those institutions, or at least higher education institutions. But before we get to those items... Can we talk a little bit about your efforts on Capitol Hill to stop foreign influence, or at least expose and make more transparent foreign influence over American Middle East Studies programs? Absolutely. Uh, It's it's a real problem, and it's exacerbated by current legislation, which allows universities to take as much money as they wish from from foreign sources. In particular, we're concerned about uh, Qatar... And we're not unconcerned about Saudi Arabia, despite changes there. They're still a problematic donor to a lot of American universities. And despite the size of these donations, which can be millions and millions of dollars per year, the ultimate source of this money remains hidden because the Department of Education and Congress don't require these universities to disclose the ultimate recipient. And what I mean by that is, let's say, uh, Georgetown or Texas A&M or another school uh, receives uh, $5 million from the Qatari Foundation International. The monies can be used for anything from petroleum engineering, for example, or medical research, or what have you, 
all the way to the funding of uh, Islamist Middle East studies professors or conferences or graduate students or other uh, nefarious causes. But under current legislation and current regulations, that is impossible to learn, essentially, unless the university or the donor wishes to disclose the ultimate recipient. So you just don't know where the money is going to end up. Is it going to the Middle East Studies Center or the History Department, uh, to Islamic Studies, or is it going to, as I said, something benign like uh, petroleum engineering, which would make sense since these people run on petrol, run on oil drilling. And uh, what we have attempted to do is educate uh, congressmen, senators, and their staff and other policymakers on the need to reform legislation and to uh, change the regulations so that American taxpayers will know what kind, if any, influence these foreign donors are buying in American universities. Understood. And what's the most egregious example of a donation influencing university for its detriment, not to its benefit? Yeah, I think that still has to be the $20 million donation by uh, Saudi Prince Al-Walid bin Talal to Georgetown back in December 2005. It would be hard uh, to find any, any donation to any school that has had as much effect, as much bang for the buck, if you will, as that donation has had. Georgetown was already known for its pro-Islamist sympathies. Uh, John Esposito, the founding director of that center, had long been writing about Islamism as a path to democracy. He is, uh, has long, long been a supporter of CARE, uh, other various Muslim Brotherhood-associated organizations. Uh, you know, these are all, many of these are connected in one way or another, as we know, through the Islamist money that comes into them. What this donation did was allow them to increase their voice. So they've hired more people. They have uh, a bigger megaphone now uh, to broadcast pro-Wahhabi propaganda, anti-American propaganda, anti-Israel, anti-Western in general, and they're, they're right in the middle of uh, Washington, they're in the heart of Washington. So, uh, as I've said before, um, Prince Alwaleed is, uh, I think, a, a very uh, underhanded guy in a lot of ways. I, I, don't, I don't favor his politics. I think he has promoted Wahhabi uh, propaganda throughout the country. They gave $20 million to Harvard at the same time. It made less of a difference, I think, in some ways, because Harvard is already so wealthy. But uh, he's very smart guy. He didn't get to be uh, as wealthy as he is because he inherited everything. And he in, his investment in Washington, in Georgetown, turned out to be uh, immensely influential. So I think that's the single most detrimental uh, foreign donation I can think of to an American university when it comes to Middle East studies, at least. So when I, we also have the director of the counter-Islamist grid that's joining us right now. He's a colleague of ours from the Middle East Forum. And the reason why I wanted to bring him into this conversation was because we have a lot of um, what we speak about with campus activities of what's happening on campus. But then what happens after the professors go off campus to be interviewed by a newspaper or by a television program, or maybe they appear in some radio interview like we're doing right now, their students go off into the world and start influencing other areas of American life. Uh, Kyle, can you address some of the graduates of Middle East Studies programs that have been the target of Campus Watch activities and where those graduates are today? One of the people I'm thinking about is Ibrahim Samira. Oh, sure. So that's a, a really good example 
uh, Greg, of how the uh, foment on college campuses spills out into uh, regular community life, right? So Ibrahim Samira is the Virginia State Delegate uh, from Northern Virginia, and he's a dentist by trade, and he ran for office successfully, uh, actually was just re-elected in November uh, in this recent election. Uh, during his time uh, in Boston University, where he was studying to become a dentist, he was a major leader of the Students for Justice in Palestine, a, uh, a very radical campus group uh, that is very involved with the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, uh, and has been noted by the Israeli government and by American experts for uh, very close ties to Palestinian terror groups. In Samira's case, this is not particularly surprising because his father, Sabri Samira, uh, was a major leader of Muslim Brotherhood groups in the United States, uh, including the Islamic Association of Palestine, which the U.S. government says was a propaganda arm for Hamas. So these are the kinds of individuals who are being inculcated on college campuses uh, every day. And these groups like SJP are led and supported by uh, campus professors like the ones Wynn's talking about. And we also have Samir, I think, president at American University prior to his um, running for delegate and also prior to his becoming a dentist. Is that correct? That's correct. So interestingly enough, uh, Samir was actually one of the founders of Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, at American <laughs> University. Of course, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, you know, people in our neck of the woods like to joke, neither Jewish nor for peace. Um, they uh, very pro-BDS, very closely allied with the SJP, uh, and they engage in boycott and sanctions activity on campuses and off campuses uh, all around the country. And Samira, however, very successfully used this tie to Jewish Voice for Peace to defend himself uh, when he faced allegations of anti-Semitism over uh, statements he had made on social media. Right, the, 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 the statements. Now, this is this is this is the statement. Um, this is the statement that our listeners have to hear. Number one, he says, "I would never have been able to truly dedicate my life to the liberation of Palestine without his lifelong courage." Speaking about his father, uh, the extremist running for Jordanian parliament. Two, he taught me how to make irreversible mistakes. And the way I go about my life as an oppressed Palestinian, Jordanian, American, Muslim, and Arab. Three, he taught me how to properly sacrifice my life for Palestine. Winfield, do you think that Samir just woke up one morning and started thinking like this? I know we have his father's connections, but how could the university have helped him on his downward spiral towards hatred? Yeah, it sounds like in the first place he did get it, as you say, um, with family ties. It sounds like it's in their genes, but beyond that... You go to a university and you take classes, in this case, on his ancestral homeland, and rather than learning about, first of all, the history of it in general, going back to ancient times and then learning about how it developed and how the culture developed in the society, um, and then in more recent uh, periods, learning, if you're going to be truthful about it, about some of the systemic social and economic and political problems that have plagued the Middle East for hundreds of years now. Um, he's probably going to be taught instead that most of the problems in his ancestral homeland stem from Western colonialism uh, and more recently from the establishment of Israel in 1948, because as we know, one of the cardinal rules in Middle East studies today 
is that virtually all problems in the Middle East can be traced to the existence of Israel. Now, on the, on the surface, that's risible. That's absurd because uh, the uh, you know the occupation of what is it less than two percent of the land. When I say occupation, I don't mean the way the Palestinians use it, but just the the, the existence of Israel on a tiny sliver of land along the Mediterranean. The idea that this somehow has thrown into complete turmoil. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of square miles occupied by hundreds of millions of people is, on its uh, the surface, crazy. It's absurd. It's, it's a it's a an excuse for their own shortcomings. But he will be taught that in a serious manner. He'll be taught that with ostensibly scholarly sources to back it up. Of uh, you know, footnoted books and professors with PhDs and and this kind of thing. So authority figures will drill into his head that the prejudices with which he was raised, it sounds, are correct. So that rather than removing uh, the kind of um, provincialism, parochialism, the kind of biases and prejudices with which he was raised, rather than challenging those, they simply confirmed them. Uh, whereas a guy who comes into university with that kind of prejudice should be challenged. He should learn uh, and be challenged intellectually, morally, to drop those beliefs. But instead, these days, Middle East Studies programs virtually across the country are more likely to confirm his prejudices rather than challenge them. Winfield, you run an organization called Campus Watch. Kyle, you monitor Islamist activity. It's part of your, your mission. What's being done to disrupt campus Islamist influence and Islamist influence in the community? Kyle, why don't you give us a minute and then Winfield another minute. Well, uh, one of the things that's very important uh, when you're talking about disrupting Islamist networks is building um, building relationships with other uh, minority groups and other people who are affected by their behavior. And so I'm thinking of an example uh, recently out in Los Angeles. Uh, there was a, a successful protest against the Council on American-Islamic Relations uh, Los Angeles uh, fundraising dinner by a group of Kurdish Americans who are very upset uh, about the support that CARE has been receiving from the Turkish government and uh, the fact that it was sponsored by the government-controlled Turkish airlines. And so we were able to uh, reach out to them, work with them, speak with them, provide them some information about uh, CARE and, and the event and that sort of thing. And they had a very successful event go off. Uh, and we're proud to say uh, we are covering that. We covered that event for them as well to provide uh, media coverage that they otherwise would not have gotten. So working out, reaching with these groups, and then helping them uh, have their voice heard, I think, is really important. And Winfield, how does it work on campus? Campus Watch sees its mission in, in a very long view. You have to when you're trying to reform an institution as huge, as um, old, you know, as, as rich as the, the university system in America. That's, that's a pretty tall uh, order. It's kind of like trying to reform the federal government in that sense. But one of the things we've done most recently, to give a concrete example, is that we, along with allied organizations, have attempted to get as much word out as we can about a really terrible decision made by people at Boston University to come back to BU, uh, our university of the day, it seems, uh, on the potential hiring of a woman named Sarah Ibmoud, I-H-M-O-U-D. Um, she has apparently been turned down for uh, hiring by the sociology department there, but she's being considered by, by women's studies. And Ibmoud has written absolutely preposterous, grossly anti-Semitic things about uh, Israelis 
claiming that uh, Israeli troops uh, raped and murdered Palestinian women in 1948, uh, that Israeli women are sexually excited whenever Palestinians are killed. All the, I mean, it's just crazy, bizarre stuff, and blatantly anti-Semitic. And yet she's being very seriously considered for a position there, uh, which is preposterous. So we have attempted to work with allies to get as much word as we can out, both to the BU community itself and nationwide, to spark a, a, a protest against this, a backlash against this, so that BU's administration will hear just how absolutely unacceptable this kind of hire is. So between Winfield on campus and Kyle in the community, we have two different mechanisms to be able to monitor this type of activity, and I want to thank both of you for joining us this morning. Well, thank pleasure. you, Greg. Thank you. And with one minute left, we have to focus on our last topic of thought, which relates directly to the ability for us to start looking at not just protests that are going on in Lebanon or Iran or in Iraq, or also protest movements that we're trying to encourage individuals here in the United States to launch, whether it's on campus, in the community, or in the workplace. The more that we are able to oppose Islamist influence, the more that we are able to oppose its sponsors overseas and affecting us here at home, the sooner that we can influence our own children with American values rather than those which are hateful and corrupted from arrest the, across the rest of the world. I'm Greg Roman with Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. See you next week.